Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. As you're turning there, I have a brief announcement. Uh, Matt Morton, our college pastor, uh, is a heretic. <laughs> not really, of course. I just said that to get your attention. He's not a heretic, but it'd be really sad if he was, wouldn't it? You know, you'd feel really bad and, and I'd feel bad. It'd be kind of unnerving. Wow, he's a heretic? Well, I guess we're not going to hear from him. Uh, from the pulpit any longer, and you know we'll have to set Matt aside. No, but he's not. He's not a heretic. I was just saying that to kind of catch your attention. Uh, but imagine, imagine if I invited Billy Graham to come, and he said yes, and he came to speak to our group. And Billy was in the process of giving the gospel. He's presenting the gospel, and halfway through his presentation, I stood up and I just kind of shoved Billy to the side and said, "Billy, you're a heretic. You're you're totally messing up the gospel." That'd be even more unnerving, wouldn't it? You said, well, you can say that about Matt, but Billy Graham, come on, this is Billy Graham. When you hit Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, that's essentially what happens. The Apostle Paul is confronting the Apostle Peter. Peter, the Prince of Apostles, the Apostle who preached the very first sermon of the church on the day the church was born. Peter is being taken to task, and Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you are messing up the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that was? It's public. He doesn't, hey, Peter, come aside here for a second. Let's talk doctrine. He doesn't do that. Everybody's standing around. Everybody's watching, and Paul is literally in his face saying, you, Peter, prince of the apostles, are are messing up the very foundation of our faith. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine? Be really uncomfortable. Now, you need to realize if Peter can get off track with the gospel, it can happen to anybody, right? If Peter can get confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it can happen to absolutely anyone. And I want you to understand this morning that this is a contemporary issue. The church is still struggling and wrestling with Getting the gospel right, keeping the gospel clear, not clouding the essence and the nature of the gospel. This year, a book was released by N.T. Wright. Uh, I'm in the process of reading it. It's a 2009 publication entitled Justification. And one of the things that he's saying, and he's been saying it actually for several years now, is that the church has gotten justification wrong for nearly its entire history. And he's trying to put us back on track. Obviously, not everybody agrees with him. John Piper has written The Future of Justification, a response to N.T. Wright. And the two of them are fighting it out. Okay, What is the doctrine of justification, this foundation of the church? My humble opinion, I think they're both confused. Wow, well, you know, you may not know N.T. Wright, and so it's okay if I say that about him, but a lot of you love John Piper. You're saying, Brian, you can't say that about John Piper. Right? I know students who, instead of having a Bible study, they have John Piper study. Right? Yeah, that's John Piper. You can't say that about him. Well, I, I want you to know, I'm not saying that everything John Piper has written is bad or wrong or anything like that. I, I've re- read uh, at least portions of most of his books, and some of his books I've read cover to cover, uh, and he's been a great encouragement to me. I think he's a, a godly man. I don't doubt his salvation, anything like that. He's written some wonderful stuff, but you know what? Peter wrote a couple good books, too. 
And Peter got off base a little bit on the gospel. This is a contemporary issue. And it's an absolutely critical issue. Hey, let me illustrate for you. Let me give you a couple quotes from, from John. This is the great ground of joy in the word of the cross. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit. Through faith alone, not mixed with our works. On the basis of Christ alone, not mingling his righteousness with ours. To the glory of God alone, not ours. You read that and you say, that's pretty good to me. Yeah, it's perfect, actually. That is absolutely perfect. I could not have said it any better myself. That is phenomenal. Write that down, memorize it, quote it. That's a phenomenal statement. Now, let me keep going here. All right, in Desiring God, he says this. These are just some of the conditions that the New Testament says we must meet in order to inherit final salvation. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children, and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. Wait a second. Okay, I'm good with you right up to believe on Jesus, but is receive something different then? If it is, why is that? And I also have to turn for my sin. All of them? Well, David says he's not even sure about some of his sins. What about the ones I don't know about? What if I haven't turned from the ones I don't know about, which I haven't because I don't know of them? What about those sins? Ah, oh, And obey him. I'm not even sure I know all the ways I need to obey him. And humble myself like a little child? Well, uh, honestly, I'm not always that humble. And love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life? This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. I don't know. That, I'm confused. Is it faith and faith alone, or is it faith and anything? When I don't desire God, it says, In the courtroom of God, my guilt for sin is removed by Christ's blood. My title to heaven is provided by Christ's obedience. Amen. I'm back with you. Okay, bro. I'm good. We're good. And then a book he wrote to pastors, brothers, we're not professionals. He says, the salvation of the elect depends on their not denying Christ and on their enduring in faith and obedience. For only by feeding on the word can you grow and only by growing can you persevere and attain final salvation. So now it's not just faith in Christ, but I can't ever deny Christ and actually have to endure in faith. It's not a one-time act of faith by which God sets me aside and says, you now belong to Christ. My faith has to endure and I have to obey and I have to feed on the word and grow because if I don't grow and persevere, I will not know if I am saved. I can't be saved. Future grace, he says, the future grace of inheriting the kingdom is contingent on not practicing the works of the flesh. We cannot count on the future grace of eternal life if we do not love. Moral transformation, especially the fruit of love, is necessary for final salvation. Have you loved enough today? Have you obeyed enough today? Have you persevered in faith? Have you ever doubted? Have you ever pulled back? Are you enduring to the end? If you don't, you cannot be guaranteed a future final salvation. That's scary for me. That's scary for me. Men and women, is it the work of Christ alone? And I believe I reach out and receive it. And the moment that I do, I am guaranteed eternal life. Or is it something in addition to that? I'm not doubting. This isn't, you know, Bash John Piper Day, okay? I'm using Piper for one very specific point. 
because I wanted to give an analogy that I think really fits with Galatians chapter 2. Paul's confronting Peter. If anybody can get confused about the gospel, like Peter does, then you know that can happen to any of us. And I want you, as believers in Jesus Christ, to scrutinize absolutely everything you read and everything you hear, including what you hear from me. If I don't make my case from the word of God, then you need to set it aside. And that's true of John Piper or Billy Graham or N.T. Wright or anyone else. This is an absolutely critical condition uh, issue, you know, because what happens here, if you don't understand that justification is by faith and faith alone, you cannot have assurance of salvation. Okay, you can't say this morning, I'm confident that when I die, I have eternal life, because you don't know if you will endure to the end, do you? You don't. So you cannot have assurance. Justification by faith and faith alone in Christ alone is the foundation for Christian doctrine. Let me read to you a quote from Martin Luther. He says, This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. So this morning, we're going to beat justification by faith into our heads, all right? Because it is a foundational doctrine. And this morning, you may walk away and some things you're like, well, I'm not sure if I really understand it or really completely agree with that. Next week, after the 11 o'clock service, bring your lunch. Okay, we're going to sit back here in the fireside room and we're just going to talk about justification by faith. You can ask any questions. Uh, you can say, you can attack me for attacking John Piper if you'd like to, because I haven't written any books, so nobody can use me as an illustration yet. <laughs> all right, that makes it easy. So we'll talk all through that. This morning, we're just going to try to listen to Paul. Okay, what is he saying in this first and fundamental statement of justification by faith? So read with me chapter 2. And verse 11. But when Cephas, that is another name for Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was in the wrong. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the setting. Let me go back here for a second. It's public. It's personal. This is not a model for conflict resolution. Okay, <laughs> don't take this home and say, you know, you got a roommate and you drag him in front of all of your friends and dress him down for something. That, that's, this, that's not what this is about. Paul is confronting Peter. Why? Because, as he says in verse 14, Peter is not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Paul says this is the first and fundamental, most essential issue for us in life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's public. That's why it is so personal. Now, they are in Antioch. Antioch was one of the first uh, Gentile churches that was planted. Jewish missionaries, when they were scattered, they came up into Antioch, began preaching the gospel even to Gentiles. Gentiles began to trust in Jesus Christ. And so what you have here is your first really genuinely multicultural church. There are Jewish believers, but there are also Gentile believers. 
And Paul and Silas have come through there and they've been teaching. And Barnabas has taught Jewish teachers. Paul probably had Titus with him there who was a Greek. Even Peter has come up and so you've got Jews and Gentiles mixed together. They are sharing a meal together, which is enormously significant in Eastern culture. It is an endorsement of these other people. I accept them, they accept me. It's enormously significant for a Jew. Remember, for a Jew, uh, he knew who he could eat with and who he couldn't eat with. A Jew could eat with a Jew and not with a Gentile. And really, only a subset of the Jews, if you really wanted to be a follower of God, you didn't eat with people who weren't really walking with God. So you only had a meal with certain people, and they had to be Jewish, and they had to be obeying the law. For all of Peter's life, that's all he's ever done. Except when Jesus would drag him into the home of a tax collector or a sinner. And Peter felt very uncomfortable about that. Or when Jesus drug him through Samaria and he had to interact with Samaritans and women. Oh man, you know, Peter's never done that. He feels completely uncomfortable. So remember, we looked at Acts chapter 10 a couple weeks ago. When, when Jesus sends Peter to the home of a Gentile, it almost completely un, undoes him. He cannot understand it theologically, but God says, look, what I have cons- called clean, don't call unclean any longer. Jew and Gentile together in Christ, one body. And apparently Peter gets it because when he goes to Antioch, what does he do? He sits down with the Gentiles and he's eating a meal with them. And in their meal, they're not just eating food, they're also uh, taking communion Communion, the essence of communion is it's oneness. It's, it's a unity in Christ. They're saying we share the same body of Christ as we break this bread. We share the same blood of Christ. We are one in Christ. And then some people show up and where are they from? They're from the mother church. They're from Jerusalem. As we said in the introduction, these are men who believe that Jesus Christ has died, been buried, and risen from the dead. But is it is not enough just to believe in that. You must also do the works of the law. And they come and they begin to put pressure on this body. If you really want to enter into the family of God, and if you want to have equal status with Jews in the family of God, and as we'll see when we get into chapter four, 5 and 6, if you really want to be living a life that is pleasing to God, then you have to obey the law. And so what happens? Well, Peter starts inching his chair over to the other table. And pretty soon, because Peter is the leader of the first church, the other Jews start moving their chairs across. Even Barnabas, Paul's best friend, his ministry companion, moves his chair across, and now there's a big wide aisle These are the people who are accepted by God because they obey the law. These are the people who are not accepted by God because they do not obey the law. And there's this division in the church and the church that has just been born is being fractured. No longer does it have this powerful witness that Jesus Christ can unify people because they are completely delivered from the power of sin in Christ. And Christ overcomes all of these racial and ethnic boundaries. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And now the body is being divided. The gospel is being distorted. And Paul says, let's, let's go. <laughs> let's, we're going to take this one on. And it's going to be public. And it's going to be personal. Because this is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Let's look at Paul's argument. He begins in verse 15. Paul says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verses 15 and 16 form the essence of Paul's argument. I want to walk us through it. Again, verse 15. Paul says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among Gentiles. Uh, It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? What's he saying exactly? Well, what he's saying is, Peter, we were raised as law keepers. We were raised in Jewish homes. They were not raised in Jewish homes. They were raised as lawbreakers. It's not a pejorative statement like it sounds. We're not sinners. Paul knows he's a sinner. That's not the issue. He's saying we were raised as people who abided by the law, kept the law. They were raised not even knowing the law, breaking the law. They would acknowledge the same. That's his first argument. Then he goes on. Verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Okay? Paul's saying this should be universal knowledge. That no man is justified by works of law. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Paul is saying, Peter, I appeal to common knowledge. The law was never intended to be an instrument through which we could be put in right relationship with God. Most Jews in the first century really understood this concept generally. This is the basis of Paul's argument, Romans 1 through 3. He says, the immoral man can't work his way to God. The self-righteous man can't work his way to God. The Jew can't work his way to God. And the reason Paul is arguing it so strongly is because the Pharisees, the, the spiritual, religious, theological leaders of the day, were saying, no, faith in God is not enough in and of itself. It's faith in God and the works of the law. And now some Pharisees have trusted Christ and their theology is coming into the church and they're saying, Faith alone in Christ alone is not adequate to put you in right relationship with God. You also must do works of the law. But Paul is saying, look, we should all know this. We should all know the justification is by faith and not by works. This is going to be the foundation of his argument in Romans chapter 3. He's going to say, Abraham is the paradigm. Old Testament, New Testament. Abraham is the paradigm. Abraham was declared righteous by God through faith and faith alone. The law hadn't even been given yet. Okay? It's just through faith. So Abraham, Old Testament, New Testament, he's the paradigm. You can only be put in right relationship with God through faith. And he's saying, Peter, look, verse 15, verse 16, nevertheless knowing, nevertheless, Peter, that is, we all know that a man is not justified by works. And he just puts in there the generic term for man, meaning this applies to every man, every woman, every child, All generations, Old Testament, New Testament, you can't get back right with God through your works. That's just a universal principle. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified. This is the first time that Paul uses this word justified. It's the first time it's been written for the New Testament. He uses it five times in this paragraph. Okay, justify or righteous come from the same root word. Righteousness basically means to meet a standard. 
Okay, meeting a standard. So, for example, if um, you just uh, received a syllabus, some of you students, or many syllabi, a couple weeks ago, and your professor says, if you want an A in my class, you have to get a 90% average on all tests. He doesn't say 95, he doesn't say 100, he says 90. So if you get a 90, you get an A, right? You have met the standard. Righteousness means meeting the standard. That's what it means. So justification is God declares you meet the standard. It's not God making you virtuous or holy or moral. It's God saying you meet the standard. What's the standard? I want you to turn, keep your place here in Galatians and turn back to the Gospels. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Let's read verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Uh, Jesus is quoting from the uh, Old Testament, and then he's quoting uh, a decision of the rabbis based upon the Old Testament. And what he is doing in this section is he is preaching a sermon on the true intended meaning of God of Old Testament revelation. So, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. And Jesus says, look, you shall not murder. Most of you have kept that standard. Great. Well, God's intention in that is that you actually wouldn't even hate. Because if you've hated in your heart, it's like committing murder in your heart. And what God really wants is he wants a character change that is so deep and so profound that it's not just overcoming this murderous behavior, but instead you're looking at your neighbor and you're loving your neighbor who may have been an enemy and who may have harmed you, but instead you're choosing to love and not hate and not even commit murder in your heart. That's God's intention. Okay, he goes on. Verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, you didn't commit adultery, the physical act, but what God wants is he wants a heart that doesn't even long for things that are covetous, that don't belong to you. Verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away gives her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, verse 33, you have heard, the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows. Verse 34, but I say to you, verse 38, you have heard, it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying, what God is really after is something much more profound than conforming your your external outward behavior to this simple standard, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. He's saying it goes much deeper than that. It's a character change that God is after that loves an enemy Praise for those who persecute. When people take you, you give more because that is the very nature and character of God. He sums all of that up in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that good news? That's very, very bad news, people. That's very bad news. Very bad news. 
You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God made you in his image, and the standard that you need to meet is that you perfectly reflect the very image of God in your life, and if you don't perfectly reflect the image of God in your life, you are not righteous, you do not meet the standard. So you better get busy, right? I don't know, that sounds pretty impossible to me. Let me illustrate in just very common terms. Imagine this morning if I said, I will give $1,000 to anyone who can jump up and touch the ceiling. $1,000, cash, right now. Well, some of you might get up and start jumping, right? Maybe a couple of you get three, four inches off the ground. Somebody's got some ups, 36 inches. That's amazing. Wow, that's great. You're still in good shape, 36 inches. You know, you're about 17 feet short. I'm not handing out my $1,000. But you look around and say, hey, I got 36 inches and he only got three. You're comparing yourself to someone else. I am more righteous. I'm closer to the standard than that other person. So I don't care because that's the standard. It's not adjustable. But I'm doing my best. I have really good intentions to hit the ceiling. I'm trying really hard. How does that count? I'm sorry, the standard is not adjustable. The standard is the ceiling. And if you don't touch the ceiling, you do not get the $1,000. You are not righteous. You do not meet the standard. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The nature and attributes of an absolutely perfect God. And if you want to be in right relationship with God, you've got to meet that. So give up. Give up. What God has done in Christ is not make you able to jump a few inches higher. He says, no, I'm going to let Christ be your jumper. Okay, Christ is going to jump up and he's going to go through the roof. And you're going to go, wow, that's awesome. Can I have his jump? And Jesus says, yes, you can have his jump. Can count for you. So you don't have to keep trying to jump and get to the ceiling and wearing yourself out because you cannot reach it. Justification means God declares you right with him in Christ. It's not him making you right. It's not him making you jump a little higher. It's saying you're right because you're in Christ. And you can't do anything else about it, okay? You just say, thank you, God, for letting me have Christ's righteousness on my behalf. That's it. Okay, notice his argument goes on. Turn back with me in Galatians chapter 2. It says, nevertheless, knowing that no man, any person, no one, no one, man, woman, child, black, white, Chinese, it doesn't matter, Old Testament, New Testament, you cannot be put into a right relationship with God, justified, declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What he's saying is we trust in the faithful work of Christ. I'm going to retranslate this for you a little bit. And very few English translations really get it at the essence of what he's saying in 2.16. It says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not put into right relationship by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Okay, notice he says, A better translation is through the faithfulness or through the faithful work of Christ. He is comparing and contrasting works of the law with the work of Christ. Okay? Works of the law with the faithful and complete obedience 
of Jesus Christ. So he says, we are not declared righteous through works of the law, but through the faithful work of Christ. Even we have believed in Christ so that we may be put into right relationship by the faithful work of Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be put into right relationship with God, only through the faithful work of Christ. How do we enter into that faithful work of Christ? We believe. Okay? Turn to Galatians uh, 3, verse 22. I'm going to retranslate this for you as well. It says, The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. And we're going to get into the purposes of the law when we hit Galatians chapter 3, 15 and on. The Scripture set up, shut up everyone under sin. In other words, the Old Testament's going to say, the standard is actually up here. It's shut up everyone under sin. No one can jump up and touch the ceiling. You can't do it. So that the promise by the faithful work or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, Paul's not being redundant. He's saying we believe and we believe. He's saying the faithful work of Christ that we enter into because we believe. When we hit first part of Galatians chapter 3, we'll talk about what is the essence and the nature of faith. Okay? End of chapter 3, we'll talk about what is the purpose of the law. What does it do for us? Point this morning is we trust in the work of Christ. It's complete, it's full, it's finished, it's final, it's forever. He's done it. Jesus has done it all. And all that I do is I believe. I reach out and I say, God, thank you for the work of Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have never said, God, I'm no longer trusting in my good intentions. I'm no longer trusting in the vows and promises I make you. I'm no longer trusting in trying to do my best. I'm no longer trusting in the fact that I'm a little better than the person around me. Instead, I'm trusting in the fact that Christ died on the cross, he was buried, and then he was raised from the dead. And you said, because you raised him from the dead, that sacrifice is enough for all people for all time. I believe in that. The moment that you do that, God forever removes the debt of your sin. Forever. And he says, you are in a right relationship with me. You don't deserve it, but I put you in a right relationship with me through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Man, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? No such thing as a free lunch anywhere in the world, is there? No, except the one thing that is absolutely most valuable that you most need is absolutely free. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, you know, everywhere that Paul went and preached the gospel, you know what happened? People said, that sounds too good to be true. Okay? Everywhere that he went and preached the gospel, there were objections to the gospel of grace. When you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, if people don't say, man, I don't know. That grace thing, that's, that's too free. We need to protect God. We need to add a few more rules and regulations on. Okay? Everywhere that Paul went, that happened. This is no exception. Look at chapter 2 and verse 17. Paul anticipating an objection. He says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? See what he's saying? Paul, if you're just preaching Christ and Christ alone, just Christ's work, well, look at your life. You're breaking the law. Right? You're, you're, you're telling 
people that they can eat with Gentiles, that they can eat anything they want. Apparently, you're breaking the Sabbath from time to time. You're telling Jews and Gentiles they don't have to keep the law. Boy, Paul, what other sins are you breaking? If you preach Christ and Christ alone, and Paul, we see sin in your life, does that mean that Jesus Christ promotes sin? Sound familiar? It's Romans chapter 6. Paul, are you saying that Christ and Christ alone means that we don't have to live a holy life? Or that Christ and Christ alone, in fact, encourages people to go on sinning. What does Paul say? May it never be. People are completely missing the point of the argument. How does he respond? Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly or to no point whatsoever. Let me walk you through his response. Verse 18, he's saying, the law proves sin. And we'll get into more of the purposes of the law in chapter 3, as I said, but Paul's point here is that If I abandon Christ and Christ alone and I put myself back under the law, what's going to happen? The law is going to show me the standard and then I'm going to break the standard. The law, all it can do is actually reveal my sin. The law can't conquer sin. You're saying, well, Christ can't conquer sin. No, grace just proves how much I need grace because yes, I will fail. Grace proves how badly I need grace. The law just proves that I'm a sinner. A transgressor literally is one who steps across a known boundary. The law lays out a known boundary, and what happens? Paul says, if I put that known boundary down for myself, what am I going to do? I'm just going to step across it. All that the law can do is reveal sin. We'll talk a lot about this in a few weeks. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, One time we were, uh, I was at a college retreat, and um, I got there a little bit late. All students are out doing stuff. Walked into the bunkhouse, throw my stuff in. I walked in, it was all dark, and I flipped on the light. You know what happened? Roaches everywhere. It's horrible. I, I, I grew up where there were no roaches, you know, or at least none that I saw that were like that. I mean, just huge. <laughs> just, you know, I mean, they're everywhere. I just flip on the lights, and they're everywhere. Well, what happened? The roaches were there before. I didn't see them. I turned on the light. I saw them. All that the light did was to reveal a bad problem there, right? But the, lo- the, the light didn't kill the roaches, unfortunately. It was like, you know, and you just zap them all. Man, that'd be awesome. You know, you just walk through all the bunkhouses and flip them on. No problem. Well, the, the light can't do that. All the light does is reveal that there is a problem there. But it can't remove the problem. Paul says, if I go back under the law, what am I going to prove? I'm just going to prove that I'm a sinner. Under grace, if I continue to sin, it proves how deeply I need God's grace. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I simply prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Okay, the law is a dead end. He's saying through the law, through the teaching of the law, the law was leading me to a point where I would understand that the law can't get me where I need to go. Chapter 3, Paul's going to say the law is a tutor or a pedagogue to lead us to Christ, to show us 
The standard is you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's bad news, but the good news is in Christ. Okay, that's the point of the law. Lead us to Christ. Or as he'll say in chapter 3, if a law had been given which could impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law, but the law can't impart life. Instead, the law is pointing me to Christ in whom I can have life. That's the point of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Chapter 5 is going to unpack Galatians 2.20 for us. But let me walk us through it really quickly. How do I experience living to God or genuine life in, in God? Well, it starts with being crucified with Christ. Spiritual baptism means being united with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection. He jumps to the ceiling on my behalf. I am crucified with Christ. And I die, and consequently, because Christ lived perfectly under the law and paid the debt of sin under the law, he doesn't have to try to obey the law any longer, and I'm with him. Okay, I'm with him. I died to death, I died to sin, I died to the law. I am now united with Christ, I'm in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, Paul is not saying my identity is gone. He's not saying I'm not responsible. What he's saying is, I'm not on my own any longer. It's not just me. It's not just Paul trying to do my best to obey the works of the law. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Remember, the goal that God has for your life, since you've been created in the very image of God, is that you would perfectly reflect the nature and character of God, not just conformity to this external standard, don't murder, but don't even hate, love those who persecute you. That's deep character change. When somebody persecutes you, your your instinctive reaction becomes not to punch them, not to get back what they've taken, but how can I bend low and serve the one who is taking from me? That's character change. And God can do that in your life. God can do that in my life. God is doing it in our lives. Galatians chapter 5 is going to talk about the how. How does that work out practically? He says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I living, me doing it by myself, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this physical body, until I'm glorified. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life that I live today in this body, I live by confidence Not in myself, but in God's Son. And the reason that I'm confident is because He loved me and gave Himself up for me. I can trust Him. Okay, He proved His love for me when He hung on the cross, and so I don't trust myself any longer. But I trust Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 is going to unpack that for us, and that's probably why a lot of us read Galatians. How do I live this Christian life? Paul's final point in his argument is that the death of Christ is necessary and sufficient. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul says, I'm not the one nullifying the grace of God. These people are nullifying the grace of God because it's not Christ and anything. It's not the work of Christ plus 
my efforts at obedience, however faltering, or plus my endurance, or plus my love for the brethren. It's the work of Christ. Will God produce those things in me? Is he capable of doing that? Well, absolutely. But on that all-important day, I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and I'm going to say, I believed in you. (laughs) I trusted in you. I'm not going to plead my works in any way. Now, some of you are saying to yourselves, yeah, but what about James 2? Right? You're saying, Brian, justification by faith alone. You know, Paul says it pretty clear. Romans 4 verse 5. Not by works, but by faith alone are we justified. Romans 4, 5 is absolutely, perfectly clear. But then James comes along and says, knowing that a man is not justified by faith alone, but also by works. Remember, these guys came from the Jerusalem church and they're fighting. Did Paul and James ever work this thing out? How do you solve it? Well, we're going to punch pause on Galatians. And next week we're going to talk about James chapter 2. James 2, Romans 4, Galatians 2. How do you put all this together? So, you have an assignment for next week. I want you to read James 1 through 3 and Romans 3 through 4. And if there's one key to interpretation, it is... Come on, context, 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 context. Context. I'm going to have you read 1 through 3 because the problem passage is in chapter 2. You may want to say, well, let me read Romans 1 through 5. Get the context there. It's context. I want you to be thinking about context. Specifically, if justification means to be declared right to meet a standard, well, declared right in whose sight? What's the context? Okay, we'll battle that out. And then after the 11 o'clock service, you can come back and we can battle it some more. Bring your lunch. We'll stay all day, okay? I love talking about this stuff, in case you didn't know that. This is the gospel, right? This is foundational, justification by faith. Now, the second thing I want you to do is just spend some time this week saying, God, thank you. Just meditate upon this. God, thank you that your work in Christ is complete. I trust that. I can know that when I breathe my last breath, I know where I'm going because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left the stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Just Jesus, okay? This is worth meditating on. So as you're spending time with the Lord, you're opening the word, you're in prayer, you're walking to class, just take time and thank God, thank you for Christ. Full, final, complete. Let's go before the Lord right now. I'd like you to take just a few moments to say, God, thank you for the work of Christ. I trust in him. Then I'll close this in prayer. Father, our hearts are filled with thankfulness that Jesus Christ has accomplished meeting the standard for us. We are declared righteous in him. He has placed us into a right relationship with you. Father, we declare as well, we are not trusting in ourselves. We are not trusting in our own work. We are just trusting in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would... Just drill this truth of the gospel of Jesus into our hearts and minds so that we would think it clearly, we would speak it clearly. It's almost too good to be true, but Father, it's true in Christ. And so we thank you, we praise you this morning for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
God bless you. Have a great week. Don't forget your homework.